sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love, the government hug the government love, the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by Ken Katkin, a professor of law at Chase Law School in Northern Kentucky. It's really exciting to be doing the show again with you this weekend. Yeah, it's great to be back. There's a, it's been a few weeks since we've been on, Ken, and uh, in that intervening period, uh, the Mueller report's been released, and I know that here on The Politics Guys, we've already been kind of addressing that, but I think listeners, one of the big things that's going to kind of come out of today's show is we're going to be kind of taking a look at the aftermath and what should be happening in the aftermath of that Mueller report. Uh, And what I really want to start with is the question that I think is going to be pertinent, is pertinent uh, for the Democrats in the House and for everyone in the Democratic lineup for the uh, president to be a presidential hopeful. And that is to impeach or not to impeach, right? That's the question. Uh, This week, Nancy Pelosi uh, has urged caution on impeachment, although she leaves it open as a possibility. Uh, But Democrats and presidential hopefuls are divided on that question. The Congressional Black Caucus and the Progressive Caucuses are pushing for uh, action in the House. Uh, And the same day that Nancy Pelosi urged for rank-and-file Democrats to proceed with caution, uh, Elizabeth Warren would step forward and double down on her call uh, for impeachment. So, Ken, the Constitution, Article 2, Section 4 of the Constitution is vague, and we've only ever had two presidents be impeached, Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton, and neither of them were convicted. Now, of course, we have Nixon, who maybe the most honorable thing he ever did was resign before he could go through the process of impeachment, Um, uh, resigns, but only Johnson, only Clinton have been impeached. Neither one have been uh, convicted. Article 2, Section 4 leaves it up to Congress, although we'll talk a little bit more about some of that in a moment. But in general, what do you think from the point of view of Democrats in the House, and then maybe uh, for the 2020 hopefuls, impeach or not impeach, Ken, what do you say? Yeah, I think it's actually an easier question for the Democrats in the House than for the 2020 uh, hopefuls. And here's how I'm thinking about it. Um, By and large, I've been squarely in the Pelosi camp um, of thinking that uh, caution is needed here, because if there's actually an impeachment trial, um, there's really no realistic possibility of getting the two-thirds vote to remove because the Republicans have a majority in the Senate. You'd need 19 of them to flip. That I don't see who those 19 would be. So I think you know Pelosi has been concerned. Well, you don't want to get hopes and expectations up that there, an impeachment is going to result in a removal uh, when it so obviously uh, isn't. And that that seems very prudent to me. Um, I think the one thing that changes now that you have the Mueller report out. And I know, you know, a lot of the media reporting has focused more on Barr's initial spin of that report rather than actually what the report says. But the report makes it completely clear that uh, Trump committed um, numerous uh, impeachable offenses and all of the evidence is laid out um, in the report. Now, I don't think that changes the political dynamics. I don't think there's anything that's going to convince the Senate to vote to remove um, but I think it does mean that um, in terms of accountability to the rule of law, the Congress has to somehow hold him accountable. And I think what that means the Congress actually has to do 
is um, in the in the in the sort of same process that they've been doing of more aggressive routine oversight. Um, I would actually label some of these uh, committees uh, impeachment inquiries, but I just wouldn't ever get to the point where I get to the end and, and bring it to a vote. I think that's the that's the right way to proceed with just relentless investigation, inquiry, fact finding, report issuing, you know, all in the name of, you know, trying to decide whether to bring uh, articles of impeachment or not and 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 run out the clock that way over the next two years. I think that's the right move for the House. I don't I don't know um, exactly how that works for the candidates, though. And that was your, the other part of your question, mm -hmm. because they, they really have to take a position. And I think the the tactic that I'm talking about, you know, largely, um, you know, means keeping a watch and wait, you know, at least rhetorically. Um, if the House is going to do a very serious investigation without an eye towards ever bringing a close to that investigation, then um, the, 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 the sort of rhetorical position is, well, we're just you know, trying to figure out whether there's an impeachable offense. But I, I think that's a hard position for someone because someone running for president, I think, is going to have to take a position one way or the other on whether there's already uh, whether there should already be an impeachment or not. And that's already been a point of contention. Uh, Bernie Sanders, for example, arguing that this is this is pointlessness to go after impeachment. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is saying, no, we have to do. I mean, that's that's the requirement yeah. here. That's what the Constitution requires. Uh, now, one of the things that you said that I, I'd like to push on a little bit because I'm interested in this, you said that the Mueller report um, definitely shows uh, Article 2, Section 4, high crimes and misdemeanors effectively. Um, but from the White House, the suggestion here is that it has not. As a matter of fact, uh, they're suggesting quite the opposite, uh, saying that the fact that Mueller is not willing to lay it out in any further detail is an example that there are no crimes in the words repeatedly and over and over again in Donald Trump's Twitter feed. So what do you say to that? What's your evidence for suggesting that? Well, I mean, the, the plain language of the Mueller report says the opposite, right? So it, it says the opposite of what Trump and Barr says that it says, right? So it, look, literally in the words of the Mueller report, it says on the issue of uh, obstruction of justice in particular, that um, you know it lays out all the evidence for obstruction of justice. And then it says... Um, the, uh, the, the Justice Department has a policy that um, they will not indict a sitting president, and therefore, you know, they're not going to indict him. Um, on the other hand, uh, they would, um, if they could clear him on the facts and say that he wasn't guilty, um, uh, actually, they would say so. Um, and then they don't say that. Right. So I think it makes it completely explicitly clear that the Mueller report itself, that the only reason that there wasn't indict, no indictment. Um, is because there's a policy against indicting a president. And that, that, that without that policy against indicting a president, um, the Mueller report itself says he would have been indicted because they, do, they recite that policy and then they say that um, if that wasn't the only reason that he wasn't being indicted, they would say so. Um, so I, I think that, that adds up very simply. Also, if you read the, the facts that are laid out um, in, the, uh, in the section on obstruction, most of which were already reported in the media and are sort of old news by now. In fact, that's one of the reasons people aren't talking about them as much is because it's all old news. But they, they and that's make why a we're clear, here. We're gonna yeah. we're gonna drag this old news up. We're gonna talk yeah, about yeah. it a little more because we need some long some longer term thought about it. Continue. Yeah, yeah. That that he um, he d destroyed um, uh, uh, emails and other records um, that that would have uh, been useful 
to the investigation because the investigation was asking for them, that he told subordinates um, to lie to uh, um, uh, Mueller investigators um, or to stonewall Mueller investigators. Uh, this this is sort of straight classic obstruction of justice, and it's all the case for all that is is laid out right in the report. Michael Cohen had already testified about that publicly in both his criminal trials and uh, in front of Congress. So I think you know people are sort of thinking, well, there's nothing new here. And that's sort of true, but what's already there uh, proves out um, every element of the crime of obstruction of justice. That if, if, you, if you destroy evidence um, that's relevant to investigation, if you tell people to lie to investigators, um, if you tell people to stonewall investigators, that's obstruction of justice. Um, and I think the Mueller report says that, and it says that only because uh, the, um, the, the, the Justice Department policy prohibits indictment of a sitting president. Um, that's the only reason that, it, that that he's not charging this as obstruction of justice. And and Mueller did write, um, the, I think he wrote the report modeled on uh, Leon Jaworski's similar report during Watergate um, as being a roadmap for, for, for the House of Representatives to read. And, and that's another reason he didn't draw the conclusion. So I, I don't think he wrote it with an eye that the um, attorney general, um, who's not independent of the president, who's part of the president's administration as a political appointee of the president, should should be able to to hijack it and uh, um, interfere with the independence of the judgments, right? So Mueller's doing an independent investigation, and he's laying it out there for the House. Um, and here, um, uh, Barr, who's not at all independent, has, has spins it for several weeks before actually releasing it to sort of establish uh, a narrative that's contrary to what it says. And this then just assumes that by the time people can read all 250 pages and the media has been reporting this for a few weeks and everything everybody's reading is more or less old news anyhow, um, that the that the bar narrative uh, will, will take hold. But I, I don't think it does. And even on the collusion or conspiracy part of the um, uh, 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 Mueller report, uh, whether, whether the Trump administration actually uh, conspired with a, a hostile foreign government to influence the election, um, that part of the report takes great pains to say that um, they, they concluded that that could not be proved beyond a reasonable doubt, but that the reasonable doubt standard is the standard that they were applying, um, they, which is a very high standard. They, they, lay, they lay out a lot of evidence um, uh, you know, that I think, at least if we're talking about a preponderance of evidence standard or a clear and convincing evidence standard, you know, lower standards, that, 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 would, um, that would be proof under those standards. And of course, the Starr report that was written about uh, Clinton said that that is the standard. Starr said that the, the, the criminal case standard of beyond a reasonable doubt is, is not the appropriate standard to use in an impeachment proceeding, that, that a, a lower standard like clear and convincing evidence or preponderance of evidence is more, is more appropriate. Now, that leads to, uh, I guess there's kind of two additional things I'd like to talk about here. And one of them then is, is the Constitution on this front effectively flawed? I mean, we've had two presidents impeached. Uh, and if, um, given that this is a political proceeding in the way that it's set up, it doesn't appear that there's ever going to be an impeachment. So does that factor into this thinking as well, that in, impeachment as a tool is basically just a dead letter in the Constitution that's, that's not practical? Impeachment of presidents. Yeah, I mean, there, there have been at yes, least a yes. dozen, dozen For, successful uh, impeachments of of judges, yeah, and there've been uh, there was one successful impeachment of a Secretary of Defense uh, was William Belknap uh, in 1876, but it um, that was an unusual situation because it was a it was a partisan 
impeachment because the southern states had not been um, reseated yet in the, in the Congress. So, um, I mean, I think the framers intended to um, make um, impeachment impossible if it's done on a partisan basis, uh, and um, it is. Uh, but you know, I also think they didn't. Um, expect quite the kind of partisan polarization that we actually have now. I mean, I think they thought that there would sometimes be bipartisan support for impeachment. And I guess you did sort of see that in the Nixon case. That's why Nixon had to resign, right? He didn't have the votes. He lost the Republican votes. Um, right. Yeah. But but, that clearly yeah. doesn't appear to be happening now. And as a matter of fact, that is probably one of the areas in which our founders were the most deluded and or optimistic, however you want to read that, in the idea that we would that that despite having an electoral system that demanded political parties, uh, would end up with a system without political parties. I mean, as a matter of fact, we had to uh, amend the presidency uh, to allow for slates. Uh, the idea that you'd have a president and a vice president running together, uh, because we the, the constitution doesn't mention parties explicitly and on on purpose. Uh, so I think that you're right in the sense that you need that kind of bipartisanship or maybe maybe the, the lack of partisanship. Um, but again, isn't that maybe an oversight of those who either optimistically or otherwise uh, saw a political system in which we would operate sans parties? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I go around in circles on whether I think that's a flaw. Um, I think it's good that impeachment can't be used as a partisan tool, because I think in the ordinary course, the dangers that would um, arise from, uh, you know, what I would say something like the Clinton impeachment, where I think that was just a purely partisan exercise. Um, I think I think it's better that something like that has no hope of succeeding and that that, uh, you know, hopefully would chill people from doing it. Um, and I think that probably that's the more ordinary course where even when there's no impeachable offense, uh, partisans might be um, inclined to try to use impeachment as a, as a as a partisan political tool. So for the ordinary course, I think that's probably good that it's so hard to do that. Um, it is. I think it's been relatively unusual that we've had presidents that have committed very serious high crimes and misdemeanors and, and needed to be removed. Um, I, I don't think that was the case with either Andrew Johnson or, or Bill Clinton. So I, I, I think it would have been better if those impeachments had been chilled rather than moved forward. Um, I guess I do think it's the case with um, Nixon and Trump that they deserve to be removed. But if, if the price of keeping uh, impeachment from becoming a partisan tool is that sometimes you can't impeach someone like Trump, I think that might be a, a price worth paying. Now, this then leads us to the kind of the second big topic that we want to take on, and that's the aftermath, uh, the continued aftermath of this. So not just do we impeach or not impeach from the point of view of Democrats. Um, and in all honesty, uh, you know, obviously I, I come from a, a different background, so maybe I'm, I'm not as good at answering that question. Uh, I concur in the sense that I, I think that Congress needs to pursue, uh, the investigation process, but it, it seems like a losing political cause to me to impeach the president uh, I think history with Clinton suggests what happens with that. Yeah, you end up uh, effectively having the other side uh, circle the wagons and, and come back in that case with a mandate. But the aftermath of the Mueller report in another sense has been interesting uh, because President Trump has outright ordered 
uh, officials to not obey legal requests from Democratic-led House of Representative committees, including Representative Elijah Cummings, uh, who chairs the House Oversight Committee. Uh, As a matter of fact, as a result, uh, Cummings said, quote, President Trump and Attorney General Barr are now openly ordering federal employees to ignore congressional subpoenas and simply not showing up without any assertion of a valid legal uh, privilege, uh, end quote. So this isn't just a blocker to the Mueller report. I mean, it includes other things that we're going to include on the show later, uh, according to the citizenship question, dealing with the IRS. Uh, As a matter of fact, Trump on Twitter has noted that he would, quote, fight all the way to the Supreme Court uh, if he were impeached. I'm not quite sure what he means by that, (laughs) given that, you know, again, that's the House. So maybe... if White House, like if nobody else has a chance, yeah. you might want to read just that portion to the president. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, not. <laughs> I don't even think that the, a, a Republican court is going to is going to change that. Uh, yeah. But be that as it may, this is a this is a, a huge battle between Congress and the presidency in the long term sense of that balance of power. Uh, what do you think about this balance of power shift and? Are, are we just kind of seeing the extension of a longstanding trend of presidents to continue to consolidate power? And now we're just getting it in the hands of Trump. As a matter of fact, a couple of weeks on the go in the show, that was a statement that I had read for me uh, in concerning for the Mueller report. But I'm curious about your take on that, Ken. Um, I don't think uh, refusing to submit to routine oversight is part of a long-term trend. I, I, I think it's unprecedented. Um, and I, I actually don't think it will be, uh, it'll be successful um, for, 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 for Trump. Well, I mean, maybe for him personally, but not for the presidency. I don't think future presidents will pursue a course like this because uh, what's going to happen, I think, is um, you know, you're going to have House votes um, a lot more subpoenas going out, a lot more contempt citations being issued. Uh, you're going to have courts um, weighing in on that. And, um, you know, I think, I mean, I won't make a prediction about who's going to win all those court proceedings. But ultimately, um, one of the one of the political forces that has always uh, uh, caused more compliance with routine oversight um, is that the, the House has a role in budgeting all these agencies, right? And so we have... Uh, um, agencies that are openly antagonizing the house and these agencies only have seven more months on their current budget. Um, and there's there, the house has a great ability to, um, greatly scale back on their budgets going forward. Uh, that's usually think that's Democrats why, yeah. are going to take that track. I mean, Democrats are not generally the party of withholding budgets as, or do you think this is just rises to an occasion that they will have to take that? Well, it depends on which agency, and it also depends on how they do it. So, um, you know, with the Pentagon, yeah, I'm absolutely willing to be bet today that um, every dollar that Trump has redirected from other programs to building a wall, for instance, um, that dollar is not going to be replaced for those other programs. Those are gone. You know, I think I think every every single thing that the the Pentagon and the White House has said, well, the money for the wall is more important than the money for this program, um, and we'll keep redirecting money uh, f- away from those programs to the wall, um, it's doomed those programs. So so that's money that's just lost. That's not coming back in those budgets. Now, for, for other agencies um, where the, the, you know, like the Census Bureau, um, yeah, probably the Democrats don't want to cut the budget of the Census Bureau in a serious way. They want the census mm-hmm. to function properly, but they um, but they can still do it in targeted ways, right? They can eliminate some of the um, high-level uh, deputy positions um, 
um, to the Secretary of Commerce or to the to the to the head of the Census Bureau. So you know, small targeted cuts that just eliminate jobs um, without greatly affecting like the number of uh, census door to door poll poll takers who walk around. I, I think you'll see things like that. I think you'll you'll see various kinds of retaliation. You may see restructuring because the the idea of um, what positions there are in all these agencies. That that exists because of statutes that that Congress enacts, and uh, every time it's time to budget the agencies, um, Congress can restructure the agencies in different ways. Um, you could see changes in things like uh, which kinds of officers need Senate confirmation versus which ones can just be appointed by the head of the agency. Congress controls all that, so there's a lot of tools that Congress has to retaliate, and I'm sure they'll use tools that are appropriately tailored. It won't always be budget cutting, as you point out, because there's agencies whose missions Congress, the, the House Democrats agree with. But right. but I think there, yeah, but but I think that there will be every kind of tool used, and it's all it it's all always up for grabs because every time there's a budgeting cycle, um, all these things are up for grabs. But here here's the thing, and again, this kind of transcends the specifics of Trump, is that as you noted, this is unprecedented from Trump, but. Every additional presidential power extension over Congress was was initially unprecedented, uh, and then you're right, it gets pushed back. But generally, it doesn't go all the way back into the box. Instead, it's pushed back to an extent, and then a future president uh, builds on that precedent, and and that, and that really is the office of the president presidency today is a mound of presidential precedents uh, on which they stand. And so the, the historical trajectory here is one where Congress has lost out on these precedents uh, to the president. So much so that, and, and this I guess is part of my question, how much will House Democrats really want to push uh, beyond the specifics of Trump if they think they can win? Because then they're president will be in office. And that was the same thing that happened in the transition from George W. Bush uh, to President Obama. Uh, we saw President Obama extend a number of the precedents of the, the Bush administration uh, for the presidency and, and did not roll those back. And uh, that's not a, a, an indictment in Obama, rather, I think just an institutional truth that presidents are jealous of their power and, and they have continued to build up these precedents. So how much actual pushback to the office of the presidency will Democrats be willing to give uh, and not just to President Trump personally? What do you think? Yeah, I, I see. I think there's two separate phenomena here uh, that I would keep separate, but I think they were both included in what you just said. Uh, one is that um, over over the, the really about the past 80 years, as, as you've pointed out, um, there's been a steady trend where uh, Congress has legislated in ways that delegate more and more discretion to presidents over broader and broader uh, areas of, of, of American life. Um, and I agree with that, that, that that's been the trend. Um, mm -hmm. On the other hand, I think what the difference here is that um, almost part and parcel of, of, of delegating more um, uh, legislative discretion away to executive agencies, Congress has insisted on uh, playing an oversight role. And Congress has never delegated any of that away, right? So they've said to the executive agencies, we'll give you more and more power to do more and more things and make more and more decisions, but you need to come back to us and tell us what you're doing. And then we, you know, we may need to make adjustments. And, uh, and we've never really had a, 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 a breakdown in that process the way we're having it now. Um, and I think it is different in kind because I think the, 
the 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 basis uh, by which um, you've seen this expansive expansion of presidential power, it largely has proceeded by persuading Congress at different times, typically when when the the White House and the Congress are in the same partisan hands, um, to to enact statutes that delegate more power to the uh, president. But I I don't think there's been a lot of examples like we're seeing now. Um, of just straight up violations of statutes or uh, refusals to um, s- submit to oversight, and I, I I don't I don't see that as part of a trend, and I I don't see that as as really consistent with any kind of workable government. So I, I don't see how it's as sustainable. You know, on, on the point for the Congress and the delegation of powers, I actually agree. I think where we might have some disagreement is uh, in political science, uh, beginning with uh, Are you familiar with David Mayhew? No. Okay. Uh, well, David Mayhew is a, a famous congressional scholar in the political science literature, and one one of the the big points that he makes that we're still kind of studying and working out uh, is the idea that the reason that Congress ends up uh, delegating those powers to the presidency is that they want to be able to have that kind of oversight, but really it's kind of a faux oversight in the sense that it's it's targeted towards reelection. As a matter of fact, that is uh, uh, Mayhew's major contribution is that con- uh, congresspersons are uh, solely inter- interested in re-election. And so this device of oversight is really just a means of not having to deal with the actual oversight, but rather a pos- position taking and other kinds of uh, mechanisms to ensure their re-election. And so uh, while I hear what you're saying, I-, I wonder how much true oversight Congress is really giving to the presidency and to those executive agencies that they've empowered. Uh, and so on a personal level, I'd like to think that that was, that's high and, you know, you have an optimistic reading, uh, but maybe I'm a little more pessimistic on this than you are, Ken. <laughs> no, I don't know. Uh, and, you know so- actually, I, th- I think my analysis is independent of Mayhew's theory. I, whether the oversight is real or faux, it could be either. You could accept his theory that it's all faux oversight. They still need that formality of being seen as doing it. Right, and so even if even if they really want to delegate away all the decision making, um, even if you think that the faux oversight is only about looking like they're doing something, uh, well, they don't want to make it look like they're not able to do something, right? So I, I think under either theory of faux or real oversight, Congress really can't tolerate um, just being completely cut out of the governing process. And what I want to kind of move to next is a continuation of this question of congressional oversight as we talk about the IRS missing a deadline um, for Trump's tax returns. But before I do that, listeners, uh, I want to announce uh, a new uh, first for the politics guys, and that is coming Saturday, May 4th. We are going to be doing the politics guys live. That's right, live. The Politics Guys is going to be live on the CastBox app. The CastBox app. So on Saturday, May 4th at 3 p.m., the Politics Guys, we're going to be doing a live show on the Cast uh, the CastBox app. Uh, and so what's going to happen? It's going to be Mike and Jay. What's going to be happening when Mike and Jay do this show live? I have absolutely no idea because they've never done it live before. So if you want to be part of the first ever live Politics Guys show, you got to download the cast uh, the CastBox app and you got to tune in on may the 4th be with you i mean the 4th on may 4th uh saturday may 4th at 3 p.m and see the two of them flying a little bit without net i don't know what's going to go on with this uh ken i am going to listen because <laughs> i'm curious <laughs> what'll happen uh and just again this reminder 
to the only way you can hear this is through the Castbox app. Now, Mike tells me that this was is his favorite podcast app out there. Uh, I just downloaded it recently, and so I'm beta testing it. So I can't say for sure this is going to be my favorite. I don't know, but it is the only way you can hear the politics live on May fourth. 3 p.m. Eastern uh, on the uh, CastBox app, and it's going to be Mike and Jay uh, doing it live that day. So I hope you guys, listeners, I hope you'll tune in. Let us know what you think. Uh, but Ken, for you and me, we're recording, so we get to cut out the coughs. Uh, <laughs> and uh, although we, I, you know, some 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 days go better than others, uh, but uh, I, I do like having the safety net of the digital tape. Um, some of you millennials out there, ask your parents about what I mean when I say that we did it on tape. Um, that was kind of insulting. I apologize about that. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll take that out of the tape. Uh, but because, <laughs> um, I do want to kind of circle back now to the IRS um, because one of the other things that happened this week is the IRS missed – uh, or I should say the Treasury Secretary uh, signaled that the White House was had already rejected congressional uh, request uh, for President uh, Donald Trump's tax returns uh, by the original uh, deadline, but they are suggesting that they're not going to be giving them up by their own self-imposed deadline on May 6th, just two days after the live show, uh, set out by the House and Ways Means Chairman uh, Richard Neal, a uh, Democrat out of Massachusetts. Uh, so the White House is arguing Again, that because Donald Trump is under audit and therefore he's not going to release them. If he wasn't on an audit, maybe he'd consider it, but nah, it's under audit and therefore uh, Mnuchin can't release them. And besides, this is this is a flimsy statute. It doesn't apply. Um, and besides, the election has already determined that nobody cares about Donald Trump's uh, tax returns. That, in, at least, is the argument coming from the White House. And this ties into our earlier conversation. What do you think about this more specifically on the IRS? Because we have a, a pretty clear statute that says, you know, the Treasury Secretary shall deliver these. It's not in his determination uh, to decide whether or not he's going to. And yet here we are. Uh, what do you think about this, Ken? Yeah, I mean, uh, the statute doesn't give a timeline. And I think that's really what all these delays are about, is that the um, the executive branch knows that they, they have to deliver the, uh, the, the Trump's return. Um, to the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee uh, in response to the request. But when the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee uh, put down a deadline, you know that, that wasn't a statutory deadline. That was his own deadline. So the statute doesn't say exactly how fast. And I think that's why we've seen the, the, the Secretary of the Treasury delaying rather than refusing. Um, I'm, I'm quite sure that we're going to get a judicial resolution of this soon. There's really no there's no need for the uh, House uh, Chairman of the Ways and Means Committee to state a justification. No justification is required under the statute, so it doesn't Although he matter gave whether one in this particular instance. He gave one. Yeah, he gave one, I think. Um, uh, not really for statutory reasons, but more because he thought the, the president might argue that the statute is unconstitutional as applied to the president, um, that maybe one of the president's um, executive powers would be not to disclose his uh, uh, tax return for partisan reasons or something, but these are very speculative arguments. The, the statute itself is clear. Um, you know, it's been used hundreds of times in American history, um, including uh, 50 times by the House Republican Chairman of the Ways and Means uh, Committee during the Obama administration, um, and uh, and of course it was um, in fact written in 1924 with uh, high executive officials' tax returns uh, in mind. Um, it was 
response to the teapot, teapot dome scandal. So, you know, the idea that it's not supposed to be used against high executive branch officials seems contrary to the uh, original purpose for the for the statute. Now, what do you think on a timeline, though? Because if, for instance, they delay for a significant amount of time, uh, do they sue? And and even and if they do, will you were saying a, a kind of a speedy judicial re, uh, resolution? But would it be quick enough to actually release anything in a, a meaningful way before uh, an election? Yeah, I mean it'll be up to the judges. But um, there's a couple. I mean, I think the. Um... The the House will probably start by voting contempt against the Secretary of the Treasury or against the the, the head of the IRS before they bring a suit um, to get a, a writ of mandamus, which would be the writ to force them to um, act on their duty. Uh, the uh, um, federal district court could give a, a a preliminary injunction very quickly, so the judge might say something like, um, you know, I want those uh, tax returns turned over to me in camera right away, uh, immediately. And then I'll hear arguments, and then if I decide there's no merit to the arguments, then then I'll turn them over to the to the house as soon oh, as I think that's yeah. So mechanisms like that are possible. So there, there's there are fast ways um, that that disputes can get resolved, uh, and I think that courts would be inclined to use in this case. Um, you know, if, if the uh, um, if the White House wanted to slow that down, um, they'd have to have some argument for some kind of um, fact-finding that would need to be done and that would be relevant, right? So they'd have to say, well, don't decide this too fast because we need to take depositions and we need to to do discovery and, and that's going to take a little time. But if they're going to argue something like that, they're going to have to be able to explain, well, who is it that you want to depose and what do you want to depose them about and what discovery do you need? What what factual issues are actually in dispute? And mm-hmm. I have to say, I, I don't see a lot of factual issues in dispute right now. It seems like it's purely legal issues and those could be resolved uh, fairly quickly, I think. Well, I can, I can say one thing for certain is is that we're going to have a lot potentially of legal cases uh, with committees coming in from Congress <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It, it, at the rate that's happening. And given what we've already talked about President Trump uh, suggesting, which is you know a complete stonewall, uh, I think we'll have a lot to be talking about on this show in the coming weeks and months. And so we've done a lot on uh, Trump. So I'd like to turn this a little bit because the big... I would say more uh, electiony bit of news this week is that Joe Biden uh, officially entered the 2020 Democratic primary. As a matter of fact, isn't he the 2020th candidate to enter the? Nom- I'm not sure. Can <laughs> yeah, I haven't yeah, kept track. Yeah. Right. So I don't know. 2020 candidates for 2020, something like that. Uh, yeah. There's more than I think most people can even can wrap their heads around. But that's how it was uh, for Republicans. It felt like uh, you know a few years ago. Uh, but what's particularly interesting about Biden uh, is that in weekly tracking polls, I don't know if you've been keeping up on this, uh, that Biden actually outtracks Trump and all of his fellow uh, uh, nominees for the Democratic primary. Uh, as a matter of fact, his, uh, his closest uh, would be Bernie. But in the early states, it appears that Biden has a, a relatively sizable lead uh, uh, over Bernie Sanders, uh, anywhere between a uh, 6 to uh, 12 point advantage. Keep in mind here, listeners, that we're talking with a 4, four to 5% margin of error. So outside the polls margin of error, uh, but not by a ton. Uh, but nevertheless, some, some impressive numbers right out of the gate given that we've had some interesting developments with Biden. So 
What do you think about Biden entering this race? He's going to probably, I mean, not probably, he has the biggest name recognition. Uh, Is this really the Warren Sanders Biden uh, primary or are we too early to actually tell that? Yeah, you know, you and I talked about this last time we were on together a month ago, and uh, I think we both agreed then that Biden would be the Democratic frontrunner when he came in. Uh, and we and were right, listener, see, right here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he's the frontrunner. Um, I, I don't know about, I think Sanders and Warren are not both going to be able to stay in. They're appealing to the same uh, block of the Democratic Party, and uh, my sense is that Sanders has that block um, more or less wrapped up. So I, I don't... I don't know that Warren really is going to be one of the main contenders. I, I still think Kamala Harris will be one of the main contenders. Um, and I, I got to say, I don't think Biden's going to get the nomination. I think he's going to be the front runner for a long time because he comes in with the most name recognition. Um, most Democrats have a very favorable view of the Obama presidency, which Biden was, of course, a big part of. And uh, um, well, He's and also a centrist. Have, He's a centrist. People have ideas that he's the most electable. Um, So I think he comes in with a lot of advantages. Um, I'm not sure he's going to sustain, though, because uh, I think the thing is his some of the just having been around as long as he has and kind of being a person of a different time, you know, he's going to have to be called upon to answer for positions that he took 25, 30 years ago that are not in sync with um, where a lot of Democrats are today. And I think that is actually going to be a difficult uh, uh, process for him. So if given what you say uh, at this juncture, who do you think will best benefit from a Biden fade? Uh, I I mean, one of the some additional polling suggests that as Bernie fades, that some of his voters will either stay home or ironically uh, move to to the Trump camp. So where do you think Biden supporters head? I don't believe that very many of Bernie's supporters who would be voting in uh, Democratic primaries are going to move to the Trump camp. I, I know Bernie has some supporters who aren't actually Democrats, um, but uh, I think Democrats are pretty unified in their view that they need to stick with the Democrat. And uh, you know, I think you saw a lot of uh, examples of that in uh, the 2018 midterms, that um, there were some divisive primaries and, and things like that. But uh, Democrats were really um, the, 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 the visceral opposition to Trump that almost all Democrats have, I think, is, is making them very wary of uh, the, the circular firing squad. Um, so I, I think Sanders will stay in the race to the end and his voters will stick with him to the end as they did last time. And uh, I think Sanders, if he's not the nominee, um, will endorse the nominee also as he did last time. But this time oh, will even sure. more— yeah, we'll even more forcefully campaign for the nominee even than last time. So, so that that's that's so I don't I'm not hugely worried about that. I don't have a lot of predictions about who's going to emerge. There's 22 candidates in there. You know, some of the dark <laughs> yep. horses, uh, you know, Buttigieg and people like that who seem to me like very extreme dark horses, you know, are overperforming right now relative to where you'd expect them to be. So, it's really it's really hard to it's I think it's just impossible to know this early who it's going to be, but I I think, you know, Biden um a lot of Democrats today um, will not uh, appreciate, you know, the way he ran the Anita Hill hearing. She said today that she she doesn't forgive him, really. Um, right. Uh, that was lot. big news. Yeah. Big news. Yeah. I mean, a lot of Democrats may not like his role in the crime bill of uh, uh, 94, which led to mass incarceration. So I think if you think of where the Democratic positions are today, particularly with younger and more progressive Democrats, um, Biden has kind of got a big target painted on his back. And I I think he's still his front runner status. I'm sure he's going to keep it for months and months and probably for all of uh, calendar year 2019 at least. But uh, 
I don't, I don't know. I, I don't, I think there's, he's just, it's hard for a person from the 1980s and 90s um, to run for, for president uh, as a Democrat today, because I think there's just been some evolution in how people think about some issues. And uh, it's, it's, it's hard to, for people who've been around that long to be saddled with that record, I think. Yeah, the Democratic Party is, is, I think, not as blatantly in some ways because of the oxygen that has been sucked up by the Trump uh, shifts in the Republican Party. But the Democratic Party is undergoing its own set of shifts. And, and, and something worth pointing out is, is this is not new. Parties evolve and shift as time goes on. Uh, and as a matter of fact, when you take a look at this, even uh, historians call these the party systems. Even if you have the same two parties, what they stand for and what they believe changes and molds over time in both pushing voter preferences and being pushed by uh, voter preferences. And so I, on that front, I agree with you, Ken. I just think that the Democratic Party hasn't quite yet found a stability point yet, right? So, you know, what what will it precisely look like, uh, I think is maybe up a little more in the air. Uh, but we'll have to kind of see as the 2020 uh, primary continues. Uh, but with that, Ken, it's been wonderful having on your show and chatting once again this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. And listeners, I want to remind you one last time before we sign off that May 4th at 3 p.m. is going to be the first ever Politics Guys live uh, on the CastBox app. So download the CastBox app now. You can actually subscribe to the Politics Guys there. Uh, and while you're subscribing to us on the CastBox app, why not subscribe on iTunes or on Stitcher or wherever it is that you get your podcast? Uh, additionally. If you've liked what you've heard, this show is 100% done by donation. So if you head to thepoliticsguys.com slash support, or if you head to patreon.com slash thepoliticsguys, uh, you can support this show. Uh, it takes a lot of work to make this done, and we appreciate all of those dollars. And one of the things uh, that those dollars get you is if you right now, this moment, uh, begin supporting the politics guys, you'll get some side benefits as well. And that includes the bonus show. So as soon as we get done recording this, uh, Ken and I will be recording the bonus show. And this week's bonus show is going to be kind of a, a, a departure from the week's news. And we're going to talk a little bit about some a longer term issue. What kinds of candidates, what kind of morality do we want in candidates? So if you're interested in that kind of conversation, subscribe to The Politics Guys. Go ahead and support The Politics Guys, and you'll be eligible to download this week's and all of our past bonus shows. Thank you so much. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, and Benji Fishman. Today's show was produced by Trey Orndorff. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. I hope you'll join us then.